We're in week two of our Christianese series. The subtitle is Liberating Language That Once Bound Us. And, you know, I just, I just want to thank the Father God for giving us the intentional community that we have, the, the food, fun, and fellowship that we love to do life together just so well. Um, <laughs> are you guys following me here? <laughs> are you tracking? We can, pr- yeah, loving on me, yeah. We can probably all think of words or phrases typical to Christian communities. In fact, go ahead, let, let's shout some out. I want to hear, I need some ideas for a couple weeks from now. A- anyone, any, what comes to your mind? Being blessed. Yes, I was so blessed when I got that parking spot at HEB the other day. God really provided. Anyone else? No one? Come on. Okay, Augie. Oh, my God. I can't even. That was too long. That was good. That was a good one. That was a good southern one. Sorry, online listeners. You'll have to guess. Oh, another southern one. Bless your heart. What is that? Is that, do you really mean that? <laughs> Anyone else? The Lord will provide. It was just God's will. I see Drew ruminating back there. No? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Yeah. Ooh. Purity. Oh, gosh. Yes. Good. That's a good, that's a good, yes, yes, yep. Lots of Band-Aids. So we laugh about it, but sometimes it's only so we don't cry or yell or maybe just quit church altogether, right? Because many of us have been wounded and manipulated by a lot of this Christianese. And so at the core of this kind of lighthearted series we're doing for a few weeks is a pretty significant reminder that language matters, especially in the age of social media, with information all the time, where so many are talking and so few are listening, it seems really important that we think about the things we say and the language that our faith tradition puts out into the world. And if we're going to engage the Bible and dare to treat it as inspired or sacred, well, then we have the great responsibility of putting in the work of careful and thoughtful interpretation. Careful because it's no secret that the Bible has been used as a tool for violence, a weapon of oppression, and thoughtful because while the spirit of the text may be timeless, the actual context is not. The words we read are antiquated words requiring more from us than a simple surface reading. This matters as we talk about the series because the language we're confronting has roots in the Bible. I mean, most of it's in there somewhere or got plucked out of there somehow. So the phrase we're looking at today is love and respect. Maybe you've heard of it. Yeah. Uh, It's the idea that the primary emotional need for women boils down to love and for men comes down to respect. This premise is based off of a verse from the book of Ephesians, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time in that 
uh, text, but if you want to go back later, I'm referring to Ephesians 5, verse 33. And if you do look it up later, don't just read verse 33. Read the whole chapter, and don't just read all of chapter 5. Read all of chapter 6. Read the whole letter. The context really matters here. So when we read this text in its full context, we discover an approach to Greco-Roman household codes that was incredibly radical for its time because patriarchs who had the lawful right to treat those in their household as property were encouraged instead to look upon them with some actual humanity. Radical, I know. But this section of Ephesians hones in on not just the role of wives, but also children and slaves all in one bundle. It's a package deal. So as you can imagine, cherry-picking the role of wives, conveniently leaving out the part that talks about slaves along with it, and then trying to copy and paste it into modern relevance really doesn't sit well with me. See, when you proof text, when you pluck a few verses out of an entire passage, and in this case it's Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, when you read them as they stand alone, it's really, really easy to apply a hierarchical interpretation. It's easy doesn't make it right. But we know that this has been the predominant interpretation of this text, and we also know that this is an interpretation that still thrives today as a standard for Christian marriages. And I got to say, what a disservice to this profound teaching in its time. See, this passage isn't really just about marriage. It's about relationships. It's about interacting with one another, navigating life with people around us. Specifically, it's about the church and the standard that was set for us by the willing to suffer and die, unconcerned with power, all about love, Jesus. And yet the hierarchical surface level interpretation of love and respect continues to thrive. And one of the reasons it thrives is because for many people, it works. The whole idea of women needing love, men needing respect, resonates with a lot of people. So even if I can't talk about it without a huge eye roll, even if you feel the same as me or you don't have any opinion at all, statistically this paradigm speaks to people in our society. All you have to do is look at the 15-year-old book, I read it, of the same name, Love and Respect, that continues to fly off shelves today. But the conversation we should be having is not about whether or not this works for some people. Rather, we should be talking about why it might work for anyone. On the website of the Love and Respect book, a study in which 7,000 men and women were asked if they felt disrespected or unloved during conflicts with their partner. 83% of men said disrespected, 72% of women said unloved. And to quote straight from their page, quote, though we all need love and respect equally, the felt need differs during conflict, and this difference is as different as pink is from blue, end quote. See, I don't think this is about felt needs or feelings at all. I think it's about language that is bound. See, we are categorized the moment we are born. And then this pattern continues throughout our lives. We are categorized over and over and over again. And somewhere along the way, we get really good at doing it too. I had my daughter at swim class the other day, and she refused to put on the blue goggles. 
She kept saying, those are boy goggles. I want girl goggles. And I, I was not close enough to be able to do anything, and I was dying inside. This is not in my manuscript. <laughs> we, we get good at categorizing, and with this constant labeling comes pressure to meet certain societal expectations all the way down to unspoken permission concerning the language we're allowed to use. For example, unhealthy gender roles primarily assume women to be fragile and men to be strong from a very young age. So for a woman to say, I feel unloved, would be expected because that's a vulnerable thing to admit. Vulnerability is seen as weakness, unfortunately, in our society, though thank God for Brene Brown, right? And so men who aren't allowed to appear weak, language that is perceived to be powerful if they're going to fulfill their given role in society, so enter respect. Sounds a lot better, right? I don't feel unloved. I feel disrespected. But in our conflicts with our partners or whoever we're in relationships with, it's all the same when you're feeling hurt. So even though the text this paradigm is based on calls for mutual submission in regards to love and respect, see verse 21, people love to leave that first verse out, antiquated societal norms have taken this call, divided it up, and categorized it in a way that has sustained the unhealthy power structure of, brace yourself, I'm going to say it, patriarchy. I know I bring this up a lot. <laughs> I talk about these issues often. I know that not everywhere in the world, not everywhere in our country, not everywhere in Williamson County do people have the privilege to spend so much time thinking about these things, talking about this stuff, much less climbing out of the paradigms that are entrenched in our society and, and churches and homes. Why waste time on a privileged conversation. Why not just do something? But that's just it. Real people, real people are being harmed. And it's not by the Bible itself. It's by bad theological. And for that to change, someone has got to do the hard work of sometimes burning down, often reclaiming this work of making things new. And the way I see it, if we're in the position to do that, we sure as hell better be doing it. So I'm not trying to say that our talk is more important than our action. All I'm suggesting is that perhaps our language matters more than we might think. The proof texting of this one verse alone has played a part in building a world that excludes and divides. It has isolated those who don't conform to traditional gender identities, as well as those in same-sex relationships, as well as those who are single. It has been used to manipulate women into staying in abusive relationships. It has justified assault. It has rationalized suppressing women's roles in, in the home and at work. It has emotionally repressed men. And I'm just skimming the surface here. But exclusion, manipulation, suppression, does that sound like God? And yet these things have been done in the name of God on the basis of Scripture using words. Using words. So I'll say it again. Perhaps our language matters more than we might think. Now, I know I'm not talking about anything new. Sacred text has been hijacked and used as a tool for manipulation for forever. 
It happens all the time today. Certain parts of our holy text blatantly used to achieve political agendas. Why? The answer is always, always, always in order to preserve some kind of power at the expense of others. Well, guess what? We have an agenda too. Agenda isn't always bad. We have an agenda. Our agenda is resurrection work. And it's easy to tell when someone or something ain't about that work because resurrection work isn't concerned with power or preservation. It's concerned with abundance. That's how you tell it apart. So in my Easter sermon, I talked mostly about surrender, the loosening of our ego grips as a significant part of our work. So we loosen our paradigm grips, we loosen our boundaries, everything we thought we knew about God, we let go of our addiction to preserving self, and we do it in order to make room for abundance. We make room in our churches for all people, no exceptions, so that all can know the abundance of God. We make room in our society for equity and inclusion so that all can be afforded opportunities to thrive. This is full life, knowing the abundance of God. We make room in our hearts to carry the joy and the pain of the world so that we can see firsthand that the love of God never runs out for us or anyone. And so we make room, we make sacred space for this abundance to come flowing into our lives. Now, my experience with talking about this kind of radical stuff, this radical love, radical inclusion, radical societal change, is that people tend to get scared or overwhelmed or even angry because we're talking about God and the Bible in ways we never have before. We're doing faith differently, making things new, and it's almost as if people think we're trying to change an unchangeable God. But the thing is, Jesus is the same Jesus he has always been. I'm preaching about the same God I have always known. God hasn't changed in this new paradigm. I have. God changes us. God changes our world. And when we come along for the ride, when we jump into that resurrection work, we get the privilege of resurrecting the world along with God. I love that line from Rest in You that we sing. It's a song. It's one of our favorites. It's one of my favorites, FYI. (laughs) You cannot change, but you change everything. You cannot change, but you change everything. This is resurrection. All things made new. So the question is always, where do we go from here? And the answer remains, we don't need some elaborate plan. Today... The proof is in the text concerning what Jesus requires of us. The very first thing Jesus says to the disciples in today's gospel reading before he says or does anything else is children. He calls them children. And when he uses this metaphor, when Jesus refers to these grown men as children, they don't even flinch, they accept the posture. What does it mean to be a child? Children don't know a lot, and yet their creativity and wonder and faith in the impossible are abundant. 
Children are naturally humble, naturally open. They say children are like sponges, constantly absorbing everything, listening when the rest of us don't even realize it. He died at one point. Jesus told his disciples to be like the little children. And now here on the other side of resurrection, Jesus is calling them children. Could it mean they are ready now? And could this humble, open, childlike position we should take in order to also be equipped for resurrection work? I think so, and, I, and what's more, I think this is the same posture that readies us to receive abundance into our lives. Look what happens next in the text. Children, you have no fish, have you? They answer him, no. He says, cast the net to the right of the boat and you will find some. Cast it, and now they're not able to haul it in because there's so many fish. Resurrection teaches us that on the other side of suffering, on the other side of death, we find somehow abundance new life. This is our hope. It is ours for the taking, and we don't have to worry about running out. We don't have to create doctrine that excludes people. We don't have to accept interpretations that don't extend the same amount of abundance to everyone. We don't have to fear. We loosen our grips, meaning we surrender. We make room, meaning we listen. We cast our nets deep, meaning we move from a scarcity mindset and learn to expect abundance. And from this place of abundance, we pour our spirit work into the world. Among the few things we know for sure that he did, the resurrected Jesus ate with his disciples. Right after they cast their nets deep, catching an abundance of fish after having nothing, they sat down and they shared with each other. Jesus sat with them in this moment of holy communion. He broke the bread and gave it to them. And as they finished their meal, he also gave them some spiritual nourishment to ponder, which communion sometimes or hopefully always does. He asks Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes. So feed my lambs, Jesus says. Jesus asks again, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Jesus says, tend my sheep. Jesus asks, do you love me? Peter says, yes, you know I love you. And so much is implied in his frustration. It's as if he's saying, dude, I just jumped out of a boat for you. I just swam to you, I love you so much. Even though I was within earshot, even though it would have only taken me a few minutes to get to you, I love you so much, I couldn't wait to be in your presence. But Jesus says, feed my sheep. Take from your abundance. Trust that there's enough to go around. Break bread with each other. Take this act of communion, this corporate ritual of knowing God, and do this in the world, in everything you do. Share, extend, include. We practice communion here every week because that's just it. It's actual practice for something. It should go beyond the walls of the church, into our homes, our society, and our world. It is practice at setting a table that is truly for everyone. And as the poem goes that we've often read here, it's the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. It's the table of sharing with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. 
It is the table of communion with the earth in which Christ became incarnate. And I would add, it is the table where we are liberated from what binds us, including and perhaps beginning with our very language. So may we practice this communion as Jesus taught it, not just in here, but in the world. May we practice this communion with the expectation of abundance for the purpose of sharing, extending, including. May we practice at laying down power, laying down. May we practice rising. May we practice, 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 practice until we are really, really good at pulling up chairs. Amen.